Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. go here we are with episode nine of the principles of performance podcast i am your host eric degatti along with my co-host mike perry mike if you can help me with my name if i stumble or forget it anywhere along the way thankfully we have some guys that can hopefully get our head straight as some very special guests we have uh i'm going to start off with the first guy because i i know him best uh dr adam wright He's a mental skill specialist, executive coach, educator, sports a broad range of elite performers whose craft demands their absolute best in extreme, volatile, and high-stakes environments. He's uh, coached a range of performers from elite high school, collegiate, and professional athletes to Fortune 100 corporate leaders, professionals in the military and law enforcement, creatives from the entertainment world, and he's supported the kind of mental and physical breakthroughs that transform careers. He's the founder of Arate, and he can explain mm-hmm. to you what that actually means, <laughs> uh, fitness and performance training and co-founder of Elevate Performance Group, LLC. He's the director of mental performance for the Washington Nationals and the MLB. He's also a science advisor for the Flow Research Collective, director of mental conditioning for the Puerto Rico lacrosse women's team, uh, senior mental skills consultant at the Performance Optimal Health Physical Therapy and Rehab Clinics, and his teaching roles include courses in psychology and exercise science, uh, at several colleges, including Jordan Court University, University of the Sciences, and he's also an educational board member at Raritan College, and that's how we kind of connected. As mm-hmm. I'm also a board member, board. so mm-hmm. so Dr. Adam Wright is with us today. Damn, um, I got to follow that now. Yeah, yeah. Say, wow, I'm like, yeah, yeah. like I'm tired <laughs> just listening. Say, I'm just say that's it. Like that's all. But thanks, whatever. thanks for listening, folks. Have a great, have a great week. <laughs> just shows you how old uh, I am. <laughs> And so along with him is, is Dr. Nick Holton. He's an, also an international consultant, coach, speaker, author, worked with professional collegiate athletes, Fortune 500 business leaders, educators, thought leaders around the world. He also works with a wide range of individuals and organizations most passionate about bringing signs of human flourishing to young people and planting seeds of peak potential for future generations. And Nick and Adam are working on a really cool project that, that they're going to tell us all about in a couple of minutes. But right now, Nick's current roles and projects include consulting on the human flourishing efforts at the Shipley School, co-hosting Flourish FM, a new podcast on the science of flourishing running the Anti-Fragile Athlete, a startup focused on flourishing in elite athletics and coaching executives and entrepreneurs with the Flow Research Collective. So Nick Holton, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. Happy to be here, guys. Our first dual guest, Mike. Well, I mean, uh, you know, at this point, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of brain power on this podcast right now. So I'll just be in the corner, just, you know, feeling defeated if you guys need me. So now we're excited to have you guys on. And, um, you know, this is something that I'm really looking forward to. I've always been um, really sort of uh, 
curious about the world world of sort of uh, sports performance, but really the mental side of things. And I feel like that's the missing link with so many athletes because every coach and their brother can train someone, but if you don't have the mental side, you are just you're you're missing things, and and you are missing huge things. So I'm I'm excited to learn, and I'm going to be jotting down notes. So thank you guys for coming on board. We appreciate you guys. Sure thing. Awesome. So. Um, we are super systematic in how we teach our courses and how we do everything. So I figured the easiest way to kind of systematically break this down and the connection between mental health and sports in, in a number of different pathways. So I'm going to start with how poor mental health will impact your sports performance negatively. I always like to start with like the simplest example, um, you know, as an athlete, I think we're all former athletes, maybe current athletes. Um, you're going if through you use it, it depends on how loosely you use that term. Sure. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the most, the, the single greatest predictor of well being worldwide is the quality of our relationships, right? Go through a bad breakup, have your parents go through a divorce, lose a family member, right? Um, experience anything of that kind. And then tell me that you maintain the same level of performance, right? Or that your sort of peak or optimal level of performance. And I think that's a simple example over like, I think Adam and I really feel you got to look at sort of the whole human. So when you say mental health, you're not just talking about fixing the bad when the bad shows up, but you're talking about cultivating the good as well. And then using that sort of thriving, flourishing young athlete that wants to crush it, right? Leveraging that feeling and that vibrancy um, in their performance later on. Let, let me offer, let, let me reel that back a minute, because I think part of the issue, this is not simply in sports. I think this is across the board, is that we have a challenge in terms of defining mental health. And I think there's a couple of things we need to clarify. First off, and we know this as we all exist in high level sport, right? High performance does not necessarily mean that that athlete is mentally healthy. Right. You know, often it's the case that that high performing athlete is not thriving at all and is, you know, one day from basically falling apart. Two, the absence of a clinical diagnosis, right, of mental illness does not necessarily mean that the athlete is mentally healthy and thriving either, right? Simply because the athlete doesn't present with any kind of major problems that a doctor can diagnose doesn't mean that they're free from struggling. Right. They're often they're subclinical and they're, and they're just existing and they're languishing, I think. But what we do know, as Nick said, is that being mentally healthy creates a foundation for the opportunity to perform well. And so what does that mean? And I think Nick, Nick I'll, I'll just explain what we've come up with in terms of our definition of mental health. Four tenets. OK, number one, you need to have emotional and psychological flexibility to embrace all life's challenges. Right. I think we could all agree on that. Two. You have to have the capacity, right, to accept and experience a full range of emotions, whether good or bad, you have to be able to label them and experience them all of them and not get stuck. Three, you have to have the psychosocial skills to identify and to choose value-based goals and take action to move you forward. It's often it's courageous action because you still work in fear, right? And last, I think you could do you you could do this in a way that is both conscious and active in sense that you're looking simply not just to deal with the good or mitigate, but open up your skill set to take in more stress so that you can constantly grow and thrive. Awesome. So uh, let's now turn it back the other way. How does it work vice versa? And I'm starting with the, you know, good news, bad news. We're going to start with the bad news deal. The, the, the <laughs> negative side of it is how can poor a poor sports development model or a poor 
team culture environment then impact your mental health? Well, Nick, you, you, you could you could go first and we'll just we'll keep it in that in that order. It makes it easier. I mean, I think, you know, the simple way to say it is there's probably a lot of different ways. Um, you know, most recently, and this is really around the time Adam and I, I think, more so came together and said, all right, we got to, like, let's do something. Um, it was, what, March, Adam? I think there were In two five, months. In a two-month yeah. period, March, five April. or six, quote-unquote, successful suicides among D1 athletes. And there were, you know, a variety of reasons at play, but I think the things that most readily come to mind for me are pressure to achieve, pressure to be the singular best, right? Um, an inability to sometimes navigate uh, failure, right, in some cases. But you've also got like really sensitive issues as well, like uh, body image, right? And what comes with being a really high level athlete and some of the identity issues attached to that as well. So I think it's enormously complex, um, but sports has the ability, I think, to remedy a lot of that. It also has the ability to fan those flames if we're not really thoughtful. Yeah, I, you know, if particularly if you look at college sports athletes, you know, they have compressed schedules relative to professional athletes, which, you know, they have a fairly coddled life, right? And, you know, these demands, you know, are, are, are massive, right? Not, not only in terms of their time, but in terms of expectations. And that starts at such an early level, right? That starts, you know, what club sports starts at seven these days. So the, this is something these, this overpressurized environment is something these kids have been dealing with all the way along. And now it gets to a point where it's high challenge, very high challenge environment. And if that high support environment doesn't come along with it, often you're going to see problems. And I think that's what we have, you know, and this is a crisis that, by the way, we're, our vehicles sport, it's not our destination. We like to say, this is a crisis throughout the U.S. and across, across the West. This is nothing new, right? It's coming out of COVID. We have significant issues. We don't need to hammer the stats, but we don't have the capacity to address mental disorder or disease, right? So we have to do this in such a way that we are all together here, creating an ecosystem to support our athletes in a meaningful way. And we'll talk more about that in terms of what we could do as coaches and um, sport and, and, and strength and conditioning coaches to help our athletes. Yeah, it's some scary and impactful stuff, but, you know, tying it into to our world and strength and conditioning world, the cool thing is in, you know, especially in our conversations, Adam, is your background in strength and conditioning, being able to tie those things together. And there's so many parallels when you talk about that person who doesn't have that clinical diagnosis, but yet is still not right. We have a conversation talking about that being guys who are in the gray area, who are mm -hmm. not healthy enough to really do everything that they're supposed to do, but they're not hurt enough that they're going to go in the training room. And, and to the same thing to your point to say is if I have a team that has a bunch of injuries, like I remember I had a kid referred to me from a division one football, big time division one football team that had eight, 18 kids with hamstring pulls at the same time. Hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't contagious, right? So if the environment is fostering that type of, of poor health, whether it be physical or mental, then you have to reevaluate the environment. Um, but let's, let's switch the, to the positive here and let's talk about how, Can if I, really I yeah. Super quickly, just because yeah. like we, we actually talk about that in our course and Adam has great phrasing here that, you know, a lot of when you think mental skills, that could be a really de like defined um, kind of concept, right? Really narrow concept. But we deal with distraction. We deal with, um, you know, things that are coming outside in, top down, bottom up. So like, how do we start with feeling? and navigate from there? How do we start with thinking and navigate from there? But to your point, 
How does our ecosystem, our environment impact our habits, our routines, our distractions, our goals, our emotion, right? All those sorts of things. So like, it should not be overlooked that a major uh, factor in our mental state and in the way we navigate the world is the people we spend the most time with and surround ourselves with. I'm going to piggyback with that because I think particularly in, in the world of sport performance and mental performance, we, we just, we hammer mental skills and tools, right? Motivation, self-confidence, emotional regulation, arousal reduction, arousal induction. And then we have all these things that we do, goal setting, routines, self-talk, imagery, you know, that's great. But if there's not a foundational system in place that's going to support them on an emotional level, to me, these uh, these skills are basically just the icing on the cake. And we, we have to solidify you know, what we're doing with these athletes at, at a, a much more basic biopsychosocial level. And that's what we're trying to get at. It's not simply performance skills. They're great, but there are other skills that go along with this to help athletes thrive. And that's what we're trying to address. There's appropriately so there's a significant me focus, but there has to be that we focus as well. Mm -hmm. right? And like, I, like, I'm a big Josh Jacobs fan. Like I love his story. I think it's such a cool story. Um, my understanding is I'm, I'm not sure I know all the details, but my understanding is like, okay, yes. Did he have to be resilient, right? Living in a car for a couple of years, trying to play football, making his way to Alabama, all those sorts of things. Did he need mental skills? Of course. But you always need at least like that one person or that support structure or that mechanism, something outside of the self to help you see different perspectives, keep you on track, support you when you're down, celebrate with you when you're high. And, and he at least had his dad, right, throughout those things. So it's a, it's outside a good, is huge. It's a good point, Nick, just to go along with that. When you talk about trauma, right, then something a little different, but looking at post-traumatic growth in the research, this goes back to the mid-90s, Tedeschi. And, uh, and Calhoun talked about this, but they're looking at certain things. They're looking at the people that thrive after going through this experience, right? You start to see certain elements come to, come, come to light, right? They have a greater appreciation of life. They have better relationship with others. They see new possibilities. They have more personal growth. They have more spiritual change. But one of the main factors that predict that is a connection with another meaningful human being. And in many ways, that could be a coach. If you don't have right, so so keep that in mind, right? And that's with serious trauma, not just everyday stressors. Which, by the way, pulls back, Eric, to your question about you know the way sport development can impact mental health. Uh, you know, we we got to do some work with coaches as well. Yeah. And, and by the way, I've been that guy. I mean, I have a long history in in club soccer in Michigan and Southern California, and I'm there definitely have done things that I, you know, in retrospect would prefer I not have done. But I also would have loved to have had some training about these sorts of things to like keep my cool, help, you know, guide my athletes as well. Well, it's it's funny you say that because it dovetails into the next kind of bullet point I wanted to hit was is and it, it's a kind of a personal pet peeve of mine is the archetype that we get pigeonholed into as strength coaches and trainers. And I just had it, you know, uh fortified again when I went to a practice last week for one of the high school teams I work with and I get there and I'm just small talking with the coaches as I'm waiting to do the conditioning at the end of practice and offensive coordinator who's an old you know grizzled guy who's been coaching high school football for 40 years grabs me is that you know you can beat him up now he goes you know I you know we teach him plays trainer guy comes in he beats him up and it's like if you really think that's all I do is just beat them up. And, and, and unfortunately that's what the connection then becomes with 
with fitness and training is that I'm there to blow a whistle, yell at you, scream, make you run gassers. And like, you know, I joke sometimes that, you know, every time I show up at, at a team field and I see anybody that kind of looks over and sees me and they automatically put their chin in their chest, like, oh shit, you know, he's here. But it's this automatic assumption that I'm there to, to get out the, the, the chair and the whip. And that's, I think, driven by this negative connection with training, exercise, and sport. Because um, we ran laps when we got in trouble, right? So how do we break that? How do we get away from that? So the one, the biggest thing that comes to mind for me is sometimes framing. And I think there's actually a larger conversation that needs to be had here. Because what you just said, Eric, really resonated on... Um, sort of an identity level. So when you think about a psychologist, there's a stereotype there. There's a fix the bad sort of approach, generally speaking, right? And what Adam and I are saying is like, okay, yeah, we want to be able to help somebody fix the bad, but we also need to build the good, right? My general point here is like both ends of that spectrum matter. So why do I bring that up? Well, when you think about quote unquote, unpleasant experiences or pleasant experiences, that doesn't necessarily suggest what the outcome is going to be, right? You could have a very pleasant experience that creates a negative outcome. You have very unpleasant experience that creates a positive outcome, which sort of speaks to your question. We are actually like neurologically and psychologically really kind of designed to have both systems be active to as Anna Lemke. So I interviewed Dr. Anna Lemke, an addiction specialist from Stanford on this very topic. And the dopamine reward system is designed to be like a teeter totter, right? To go back and forth. And so what does that mean? What that means like, yeah, we do need to build the good and we should have some pleasure and joy and passion and interest and drive and all that cool stuff. Um, but we also get a big dose of dopamine from doing hard shit, right? It doesn't have to be a punishment. It actually can be a reward. It's just, you're a little more miserable on the way to achieving it, right? That's the, that's the trick, of course. So that's where my head goes, Adam. I, I well, so what does this come down to? This comes down to better education for our coaches. Yeah, I, I did my doctoral dissertation on this with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. I think they access about 9,000 of their coaches. And what we found, even those that do have an undergraduate degree in exercise science, um, got little if no other than Psych 101, sports-specific psychology that is practical in the sense as other just basic theories in terms of, okay, what are best methods? How do I engage with my athlete in a meaningful way? What are my roles and responsibilities beyond sport coaching to my athletes in the system in which I work? So I think this starts at a foundational level in terms of, you know, you're going to still have these old school guys and you are, eventually they'll die off and they will go away. <laughs> but there's a new phase of coach coming in that understands data, understands analytics, understands psychology and wants to learn. And I think we have to be able to nourish them with real science, evidence-based science. And again, I think that comes back to the overall, your point, Eric, about just sort of identity as your job or your role. You know, we're not talking about when we say anti-fragile, which we'll get into a little bit more, we're not talking about resistance to experiencing unpleasantness, right? And we're also not talking about what you hear around schools in my world, this sort of fluffy language of like, everybody's happy and positive and well-being and self-esteem trophies and stuff like that. 
we're talking about like being pretty, and Adam said it earlier, emotionally dynamic and cognitively dynamic and being able to be flexible and kind of fit into different scenarios we find ourselves in in values aligned ways, right? That's what we mean by holistic, not just, hey, think everything's good or just suck it up and deal with it. It's it's more complex and nuanced than that. And and yeah. that's why we, we say there's kind of, sorry, there's kind of an art and science to that. And I think yeah. sometimes that that identity drives our biases towards our programming sometimes. And, and, you know, all it takes is it was just recently in the, uh, in the news, there was a story about Nebraska and how the coaches were bragging about how their linemen would puke 12 to 13 times a practice. And there was a certain segment of the population that was pumping their fist and saying, yeah, that must be an awesome program. Um, meanwhile, they, they, they lost miserably and they fired their head coach two weeks later. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, those biases may sometimes get in the back of our head to say, Hey, I need to make a program that's going to beat, beat these kids up. Um, because that that's what I'm supposed to do. Right. But it's not necessarily what, what I'm there to do. I'm there to get them to, to win games and, and be able to come back and play the next one. But Mike, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so, you know, one of the things that I'm really hearing because, uh, you know, in, in our world of strength and conditioning, we talk about agility, right? We talk about you know, agility and agility is really a response to an external stimulus. Mm-hmm. And, Emotional agility is, and in, in, from what I'm hearing from you guys, because you guys are the pros, it's your ability to to respond to whatever type of scenario in scenario that you're in, and hopefully respond in a way that is going to result in some sort of positive adaptation or positive scenario. Because like agility, people think of like running through cones and doing drills, but agility is is really, in my opinion, in, in the world of sport. But it seems like with you guys, it's your ability to manage things that come to you in an unmanageable way. Well said, I, I, and I think the parallel is, is, is exact. And the, the idea, if you're going to ask what, what I do for a living, like what do I do within Major League Baseball? My whole goal is to help guys regulate emotionally so they are psychologically flexible under pressure so that they, they have a certain disposition, right? Certain God-given dispositions in terms of who they are and they have a skill set they built, they built up over a lifetime. And my goal is to help close that gap it's under pressure. How do they access those skills when they need them? And the way to do that is, well, not, not to coddle them, right? Not, not to, not, we need to put them in a high challenge environment, create volatility, create randomness, create disorder, create stressors, but then support them and give them the coping mechanisms to effectively deal with them and have the opportunity to grow. So when they are put right under that pressurized situation, it's like, oh, I've been here before. I'm good. I've accessed everything I need to, as opposed to panicking or choking or worse. Do you, do you get you guys? I don't know if you're basketball fans at all, but you remember when Damian Lillard hit that like 35 footer to knock out the Thunder? This was like two, three years ago. Um, maybe you remember, maybe you don't, but this was just this wild, wild shot, right? And he he knocks him out. It's game six. Like he's already got a reputation for being clutch. And so they ask him about it after the game. Like, why do you think you're so good under pressure? And Dame basically says, because it ain't pressure, like pressure is the single mom, like looking to put food on the table, right? Pressure is the homeless person trying to find a place to sleep. Like, don't get me wrong, like it's difficult, but this is a game and it ain't pressure. And what he, what he just said is like, I have adapted, right? Now we don't wish those things on anybody, but in that particular case, he credits those difficult experiences with ultimately giving him an edge, so I think what we're trying to do to Adam's point is like help people practice preparing for that edge in a safe 
way, right? In an incremental, thoughtful way, but also buffering against it by building the good simultaneously. And one thing I'd love to add here, because you mentioned sort of the challenges. Um, I think the one thing that I've experienced in life through, you know, a bunch of different things is a lot of people only change when something really bad happens or their back is against the wall. And, and in my opinion, if, if you can be proactive and learn about how to manage these scenarios and these hard times without having to have the really bad news, that's the sweet spot. Because uh, I feel like so many people, like they don't make that change until something really shitty happens. And it's a trainable skill as, as far as I'm concerned. And, and that's what you guys do is it seems like you guys really teach people and give people the skills and empower people to, to manage whatever stressors will that will come at them. And hopefully it results in, again, that sort of positive scenario. I'll push it a step further that I think that's the idea of being robust and resilient. Right. But we're trying to make people anti-fragile, which means we're not simply trying to teach people to better manage stress or cope with stress, which mm -hmm. is the typical model. What we want to do is increase one's capacity to seek stress. Right. And that's a very different mindset. And that's a yeah, very different perspective. It is. I, you know, I wouldn't have even thought of it that way. So uh, it makes perfect sense, though. All right. So um, with with us, if you know, I have a, a, a high school, high level baseball player that I'm going to see later on. And mm -hmm. when part of his initial evaluation is is being able to break down the complexity of all the different elements that are going to uh, end up showing up on the field one day. And so I'm going to break down everything from his health to his movement, to his performance, to all these factors. And I know that mental is a piece of that. But as much as I can evaluate your movement really well, I can have some really good ways to get baselines on performance. How do we as, as strength and conditioning coaches, personal trainers know that, hey, you know what? The biggest barrier here isn't your strength or your mobility or, or your nutrition. Your, your biggest barrier may be a mental thing. What are some of the things we can leverage to, to recognize, okay, when the, the mental component of this is, is maybe one of the more contributing factors? Let me take that, Nick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I'm going to do this in a little more formal way because I think it's important that that I, I want coaches to understand there's a framework here, and I look at it as primary, secondary, and tertiary, right? So the first thing as a coach, which is most important to me, is to create a psychologically informed or literate culture, right? The notion, Eric, that you're even bringing this up and having this discussion, and I know what you guys do. I, I, I've I've been you know to seminars. I know this is part of what you do. So I'm singing to the choir here. Just the ability to bring that up as a meaningful part of your training is number one. And that sets the tone because it normalizes it, right? Coming from somebody like you as a professional. So communicating the value of the psychological and emotional element is important. And then teaching them to be open to discussing it. And what does that mean? It means learning how to ask the right questions, right? I think a lot of people are scared because they don't know what to do. Like, it's like your, your job isn't to do anything other than connect, be curious, get to know your athletes because when you get to know them, then you're going to know when a behavior is a little off. And that brings you to the next one, which is the secondary, right? It's like to identify and refer, right? Attend to these changes. You're not, you know, once you get to know someone, you're going to see a change in mood. You're going to see a change in attitude, maybe a relationship issue. Try frankly, as a CSCS, which I've been for 20 years, I often find my athletes are more willing to speak with me in the gym than they are with the door closed as a mental skills consultant. You have a unique opportunity to engage in a in a a relationship that's already based in trust because of that physical relationship you have. I 
I find that people are more open to talking to gym than behind closed doors, ironically, right? So asking about their sleep, asking about their eating, asking about their energy. What do you notice? Nine times out of 10, they're going to say, coach, I'm fine. I'm good. That one time you're going to see a little hesitation, right? And say, let me explore a little bit further. Just ask the next question. Keep them open. You don't have to treat. And then if it gets to that next stage, know that you have something in place in terms of a pathway within your institution or team where there's a non-emergency issue, but this person needs help beyond what you can give. Or if it is an emergency issue and there does, you know, issues of suicide come up, right, plan, then you call 911, right? It's not so scary. And then the third part is the tertiary part. It's like adherence. Reinforce athletes that they're currently seeking care, that it's a good thing. Respect what their needs are in terms of your involvement. They might want you involved or maybe not. Ask them, right? The other thing too is, which to me is be, this is one of the issues I have in college sports. Be open to allow the sport, right? Allow your, your schedule to be open for them to accommodate treatment. That's a big issue. So even though athletes will have access to, to care within a college environment, they won't go because they can't find the time. And if, if they are in care, they should stay engaged with the team find ways to keep them involved in meaningful ways. So go ahead, Nick, I'm sorry. Well, that's perfect. No, cause I'd say the only thing I would add from like that organizational lens is the systems and the policies yeah. with you, right? Like everything Adam said on an interpersonal level and what are the implicit signals that you're sending, right? Or not sending through whatever it might be, right? Signage, rules, regulations, policies, language, you know, the cultural elements of what's happening. Um, in the office or organization or training room or wherever it is. Yeah. And, and give a book. Like I, 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 even as a CSCS, I, I always give my clients, say, read this, you know, whether it's a sports psychology book, really the baseball or a general book or what, just here, read this. What do you think about it? You know, let's, let's, let's have a conversation. You know, I know so-and-so's using it. I know this pro's using it. I know that pro's using it. Right. Did you see this pro on TV talking about traveling with the sports psychologist? You know, just normalize it. Absolutely. So let me ask you guys this. So what can we do uh, physiologically to support better mental health for our athletes is, you know, breathing techniques, looking at heart rate variability, uh, monitoring their load, looking at daily readiness, like as coaches, what would you say are the, the main things that we can do to help our athletes in that world? Because it's not our, it's not our wheelhouse, right? And obviously, there's a scope of practice conversation. But as strength and conditioning coaches, what are those big rocks that you could suggest that we could do? to help with our athletes. So this is what I mean about a psychologically literate environment, right? And the idea is we, the problem is we work in silos and, and you said to yourself, like, that's not my, it's not really my role. Why not? Because your goal is not treatment, it's observation, right? And I think what we do well, at least in our system is that we talk across silos. The ATs talk, the PTs talk, the strength conditioning coaches talk. I mean, we, we're all in the same meeting talking about our athletes. We knew, we know, we knew we talk HRV in MLB. Now you could wear a whoop, you could wear a wearable during gameplay. They allow it. So and now, now because of, of the union, we, we can't collect that data, but if we we're constantly looking for objective means to start conversations in terms of habits, what are routines look like? Where are you right now? Okay. We notice your spin rate and your velocity was off last game. Is that a psych? We, we see you know, your volume has been high, right? You're getting hot three nights in a row you know, in the bullpen, I get it, but what else is going on, right? Let's take it from every angle. And what that means is we all have to have a conversation and collaborate with this data, right? So I think what that comes down to more than anything is like, we need to not 
I, I think we have to be very careful in terms of how we constrain ourselves and what our roles are, mm -hmm. right? Particularly when it comes to this issue of general mental health and well-being, we are all part of this team to well, make you know a better athlete. What if we don't have a team? What if you're a strength and conditioning coach that's working with athletes that don't have the resources to, to work with what you guys do? How do you suggest that we start that conversation? Go ahead, Nick, and I'll, I'll give my thought. Well, I would say to me, the obvious sort of like the middle of the Venn diagram here is um, just greater awareness of what they're feeling. And I don't mean psychologically, I mean, physiologically, right? Like mm -hmm. in, in the sort of work that you do, in my experience anyway, like the more precise you can sort of focus on a movement, a muscle group, whatever it might be, generally the the better you're going to see, um, you know, performance in that particular area. And so what does that require? That requires awareness. So why do we mention that? Well, if you take different theories of like, you know, embodied cognition and distributed cognition and all this sort of stuff, thinking doesn't just happen in the brain right? Like processing actually happens in a bodily way. So being able to notice sweaty palms, being able to catch that you have an accelerated heart rate, being able to sense the difference between seven hours of sleep and seven and a half hours of sleep and eight hours, right? Or an extra minute in the cold tub, whatever it might be. That all starts with, you know, interoceptive awareness, but just really simply like bodily awareness. And I think that's kind of low hanging fruit for folks in your world. Awesome. I tell you something that it was a very cool experience. It was, it was somebody that I actually referred to Adam uh, was a pro pitcher that I was working with really struggling with the velocity and he was working with weighted balls. And it was an interesting situation where he would, he could get the, the four ounce and the six ounce to do what exactly he wanted to do. As soon as he picked up that five ounce ball, something happened. And this was a guy who had a history of, a, of two, two elbow surgeries, including a Tommy John. And there was something that, and he even recognized it when we said, there's no physiological reason you could throw the four ounce this much, six ounce this much. And all of a sudden that one ounce difference that most of us would never even perceive, but a professional mm -hmm. pitcher will. And all of a sudden he, he's got this block. And so that's, I, I realized that the, this is not something I can train away. Right. And that's when I immediately got Adam involved and, and kind of took it from there. But, you know, that was one of those markers and, and, and Adam, you can maybe pick up kind of where I left off there, but that was one of those things for me to realize that, like, I know that this is something that I can't necessarily fix. What'd you do, Adam? Now I'm curious. <laughs> that's trade, tra trade secrets. <laughs> Trades. And you know, the, the truth is with, with a lot of this, right. Particularly with this, we could say this about the social sciences in general, right. We know there's a crisis of, 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 um, repeatability. Let's say, so like, like the best studies are very hard to do again, yeah. right. In the world of, of like, let's say social psychology, Bring it to sports psychology; it's even worse. They're usually very small sample sizes. They're they're poorly designed, but yet we extrapolate all this data. Like it's like yes, this worked with 15 female sophomore volleyball players, but now I'm going to bring it to a 42 year old major league baseball player. Hmm. The, you know, is that scientifically appropriate? No, but this is what we do. The point of this is know the difference between what's evidence based, right, and what's evidence informed. And I think with a situation like this. We're using evidence-informed practice. Like I can't say this study shows that this protocol is going to work with this kid, but I'm going to kind of gather different 
now this is the art, as you said, the artful application, different ev evidence informed, right? It might be a little psychoanalytical work, a little cognitive behavioral work, a little behavior, you know, I, acceptance commitment. I'm going to do a little bit of everything and see what sticks. And, and, and a lot of that is a co-creative process with that athlete and individual, because we simply don't know. And anybody tells you I have the answer, like I've been working with a lot of clients with the yips lately. You know, and it is a fascinating, it's a ton of research, it's a fascinating topic. It could be career ending. I mean, it could create, you know, it's pushed people to suicide. Um, it's a serious, serious issue, particularly for a professional athlete or a college level athlete, but we don't know what's going to work. And there are a lot of people out there saying they do. And the truth is the science doesn't support that. It's just not that simple. Oh, yeah. I think that's, <laughs> I think it's kind of worth reinforcing, like, the sort of work that we're looking to do is ultimately trying to equip young people in particular, but it might be coaches as well to figure out in an informed way, right? What are some different approaches, strategies, competencies, skill sets that have some good evidence behind it and work for a variety of people in a variety of settings, but there is no piece of science in the social science world, maybe period that is 100% true for 100% of the people 100% of the time. There's so much variance, right? And I think of it like simple examples like the NFL draft, like how much data goes into studying those athletes, right? And what would you say is the percentage of like good picks, however you measure that, right? Because people just vary wildly. So you want to try to guide and educate, but you also want to equip them with the ability to kind of study themselves and know themselves and, and run the experiment, really. So something you said before, Adam, that I that I really love, because uh, I guess I've just, you know, kind of had shit luck that I've been doing it. And, and uh, I guess it was the right thing is, is I recommend a ton of books. I'm a total mm -hmm. audible junkie. And uh, one of the latest ones I've been uh, giving out, especially to coaches, uh, is Do Hard Things by Steve Magnus. And I think he does a very elegant job of, of kind of breaking down the myths of mental toughness and what we think that is and what it really is and what we've always kind of tried to do to, to, to kind of create that. And it's not done through running gassers, is it? <laughs> you're, you're opening up a topic we've talked a lot about, Nick and I, uh, in, in, in terms of this. You know, and I, th that is, it's a good book. And I think he brings up some great, great points. Uh, and he's worked with a lot of athletes and has a lot of experience in the running world. Um, I think this is what we try to capture in this idea of anti-fragility, right? And the idea that does, being anti-fragile as a concept, as a word, does not mean you're going to grit and bear it, right? This does not mean, right, to push harder constantly, right? What what this means is allowing yourself the the opportunity and the, the being vulnerable enough to say, I need more help. I need more recovery, right? I need more support, right? I'm not where I need to be. Things aren't going the way I need to. Can, can you give me a hand? That kind of, so it's a very different mentality, right? And I think this is something that's, that we want to, I, I think we need to hammer this home because I, I know we're going to get some pushback with this word. Um, but yes, doing hard things is important in a high challenge environment, but at the same time, having a high support environment that allows one to have a scaffolding around them that, that can give them give them the kind of bolster they need at a certain time within their life and career, depending on what's going on outside of sport, is essential. We lose too many kids, right? What what are the statistics at thirteen? Something like seventy five percent of kids drop out of uh, organized sport in in the U.S. It's some godly number, which is absurd. Why is that happening? 
right? Why is it happening? Because it gets more and more pressurized, more and more professional. It's a $19 billion industry, right? And you're pushing kids out because they don't have the support they need. And the parents can be just as guilty as adding to that pressure as the coach. It's not just coaches, right? We need to change the system. And it starts with, with creating a dialogue around what real toughness is. Go ahead, Nick. You want to add to that? I get all my, I get on my, I start to my diatribe here. No, I think you nailed it. Nailed it. I mean, just the, the language I always think about and use is this isn't really an either or sort of approach or scenario. This is a both and, right? Like you really need to help these folks, right? These young people, these student athletes for the most part, or young professional athletes understand how to build the good and navigate the bad. This isn't a suck it up, never feel anything sort of mindset. And this also isn't a flowery Pollyanna-ish sort of mindset either, right? It's it, We keep coming back to this idea, I think of teeter-tottering and balance and flexibility. And so like, yeah, do hard things, but probably not all the time, right? Like <laughs> enjoy, enjoy life a little bit as well. That's okay. Yeah, but that doesn't make a cool T-shirt or bumper sticker. Like, yeah, correct, but not, <laughs> but not all the time. Just <laughs> when it's appropriate. <laughs> the other, the other thing that's important too is for young athletes to recognize that. Like, I, at this point, I've probably like, like you guys, I've worked. I don't know. I lost track seventeen different sports, right at, at this stage of the game, and including like chess and things that you know highly competitive. But, but like, um, what what you see in working with professionals, they're dealing with the same fears, the same doubts. It doesn't change once you get to the professional level, right? They just learn how to take more courageous action, even though they have those fears, right? These automatic thoughts and if you like, they don't necessarily go away. You just learn how to deal with them in a different way and you have a different relationship with those fears. And I think that's what young athletes need to understand, right? There's nothing wrong with you if you have these doubts about your ability and these fears. It's like you get to the highest levels because you can do it anyway. And the way you do it is not just on your own. It's getting support. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So Mike, you got them, you got, you're up next on, on the next so, one. Here. So guys, as far as, um, so what mental factors and uh, mental factors and attributes are more accurate predictors of high performance in general? Are there any specifics or trends that you guys have seen through your work? So ahead, Nick, I'll, yeah, I'll this, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the things that come to mind to me, uh, to a certain extent we've mentioned already. So um, I'll take like my favorite example is optimism. This does not mean positivity as in everything is always good, right? Like what optimism means is that we have a mindset or a general belief that things will go well or could go well, right? Why is that essential for a peak performing athlete? Because you can get into the hall of fame in Adam's sport by failing two thirds of the time you are going to fail more frequently than you succeed. So you better be an optimist and keep swinging, right? Steph Curry, at this point, I really don't think there's a debate. Greatest person to ever shoot a basketball and he misses half of his shots, right? So it, most, in my opinion, high-performing athletes or high-performers in general are sort of underpinned with optimism. That said, there's plenty of other things that I think Adam alluded to that help us sort of navigate, circumvent, or grow from unpleasantness. And so the, the common stuff that I would say is like cognitive framing, or what you might hear is like perspective taking, mm -hmm. taking different views. That's sort of the cognitive flexibility piece. But we've also talked about emotional agility. 
I always say like, I love the example of Michael Jordan, like just making up stories and like things people said to him to piss himself off and like get into that state. That's emotional agility. It doesn't just mean taking the unpleasant and feeling better. Sometimes it means like being a little too bored and chill and firing yourself up. Right. Those are the things that come to mind for me. So um, I, I'm sorry, before Adam, before you jump in that, that came brought up two thoughts in my head was one is when you talk about the optimisms, how much of that is the self-talk or kind of fake it till you make it like, you know, uh, I love yeah, Trevor, Mo Mo Trevor Moad's book talks to about neutral. like, and, and is, is, yeah, yeah. Getting to neutral. And, and one of the policies I always say in the teams that I have a little more impact on their culture is to say, one of our rules is don't say dumb shit out loud. Right. And so uh, how much of that is self-talk? Like you, you may not have that optimism on the inside, but I'm not going to let anybody know that. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it's, I think it's a bit of both. I think you're going to have like most things, you know, we are our genes. So there's going to be some genetic disposition. Um, that said, like we have a lot of good science that suggests you can do things to train it and tweak it. And we'll give you like the simplest example. It sounds really, I think, hokey for a lot of, you know, um, maybe your listeners, I'm not sure, but it, it's gratitude. Like what on the surface, what is gratitude? Gratitude is literally practicing seeing the good. It is neuroplasticity for seeing the world differently, right? And what are the, what's one of the empirical outcomes of gratitude practices, like simple gratitude journals? Increased optimism, right? But there's other different forms, you know, benefit finding, silver lining it, um, sometimes being retrospective. So take, take an example, like uh, we all know Rogers, Roger Bannister, right? First human being that we know about to break a four-minute mile. Well, he's told at the time that it'd be impossible to do so, right? But Bannister presumably had really high self-efficacy. He had belief in his own ability to do this thing, take on this challenge. Well, what is self-efficacy often based on? Prior accomplishment, right? Can you focus on and notice your wins from your history in a way that creates a different narrative, right? And a different expectation for the future. And, and frankly, like we're really bad at that. It's super easy for us to focus on our failures, ignore our wins. And, and that's because of the negativity bias. But um, I'll shut up for now and let Adam get in here too. No, I, I think you're tapping all of it. I, the most important thing that I see with at the highest level of sport is that people, I, you know, I, I think this gets overused, but they truly do become process oriented and they anchor themselves in their routines and their systems. Because what that does is, regardless of what underlying fear they may be thinking, they don't necessarily fuse with it, right? Those thoughts that are automatic, they come up, right? They can quickly and flexibly change their perspective and do something meaningful that's going to move them toward their value-based action. And what that means along with that is like, they never, they better have a why. Like, they better have a reason. What Once you sign that $100 million contract... You, you better have another reason to produce because it just can't be about that external. There's got to be something else. And I see for a lot of these guys and, and I get it, there's a me culture and all this stuff, but you know what, to credit for the, like the guys that are really, really doing it at the best level, they're not just playing for themselves. They're playing for their team. And ironically, that actually helps them because it takes some pressure off. So the idea that like recognize we're in this fear network and they can quickly get themselves out of it by focusing outside of themselves. It's like the moment somebody tells me that they're worried about their performance, like once you're internalizing your thought process, 95% of the time it's something negative. So they learn how to quickly externalize their thought process. And often it's task relevant. 
but it also could be helping the guy next to them. It could help be a leader in the clubhouse. Like there are ways to get outside just myopically focusing on your performance and you, right? One of the things that always fascinated me um, was the the work done by Angela uh, Duckworth and mm-hmm. talking about predictability of, of success with using her grit scale. And I think she used it with West Point, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how, they, how, how are they able to predict which ones are going to be the most successful? And it wasn't your traditional markers, right? It wasn't their grades or it wasn't their physical capacities. It was it was these markers of the grit scale. And people here are going to hear grit and they're going to think that's grind your teeth, mental toughness. I can do more gassers or I'm going to, you know, run further than you. But it's more it's more than that, right? It represents a greater whole. What does that mean to you? I'll just throw the way she defined it was perseverance over time combined with passion. Right. She had some pushback, by the way. Right. So in terms of that, we won't get into the details from the academic perspective, because sometimes I think some of this comes out of jealousy. But there's some other interesting things, because what you see with some of that research in particular is that people that are highly conscientious, as you know, is the fact that uh, so correlates very strongly being gritty. So is there such a thing? But that's for another conversation. I think our I think the point here is that defining grit in that old school way, right, and like our job as a coach is to push back against that, right, and to re and to realize that it's like being gritty is also having a why and being intrinsically motivated. You don't have to be pushed so much when you know why you're doing what you're doing and you're passionate about it and you're following in such a way that you're not worrying about the outcome. You're just engaged fully in that process and getting marginally better every day, right? Go ahead, Nick. You can say something. No, I'm just, I was going to say what, what you said, but I'm just thinking about some of the other connections here as well. You know, that Adam broke down Angela's stuff into those two components, right? Passion and perseverance. And like perseverance can't really come first. Right? Like we're just a little more willing to persevere for things that we actually love. Right. And over the course of time, if it's only perseverance, you're going to be in a, a pretty bad way. Right. And it makes me think of these, these other like couple of studies, famous studies in the psychological world. There's, there's one that's basically created what's called the well-being boost. Mm-hmm. So Sonia Lierbormirsky does this huge meta-analysis, like 230 some studies, collective sample of like 300,000 people and asks a pretty simple question. Um, are people better at stuff when they feel good? That's basically the question, right? So when they experience positive affect, are they better at uh, stronger marriages, better performance, higher salaries, more motivation, greater resilience? The simple answer is like, yes, at the well-being boost, we're better when we're generally feeling good. But then you got this other study, the marshmallow test or the marshmallow (laughs) study. Maybe you guys have seen videos of this one. Your listeners probably have. They bring these cute little kids between ages of, I don't remember, three to five, three to six, Mm -hmm. sit them at a desk, put a marshmallow in front of them, and then basically say, oh, I need to leave the room for 10, 15 minutes. Um, You can have the marshmallow, but if you wait until I come back, I'll give you a second marshmallow. And so then they record the kids struggling and smelling and like trying not to eat it. Basically, what they find later on is that the kids who were able to wait for that second marshmallow or delay gratification, they outperformed the other, the comparison group on a lot of different markers like GPA, physical health, success, salary, those sorts of things, right? So why do I bring this up in the context of grit? Um, 
like, okay, yes, we all know there are moments in life. And again, it comes back to balance and teeter-tottering. There are moments in life where you have to wait for the second marshmallow, where you have to be gritty, right? But if you are gritty all the time, excuse my language, but what the fuck is the point? Like, at <laughs> what point do you eat the damn marshmallow, right? And I've had, and Adam talked about the academics, right? Like, there are colleagues in this world that will sort of say, like, it's not always correct to be gritty. Mm -hmm. It's not always the smart thing to do. So to Adam's point, it's not about just one or the other all the time. It's conscientiousness. What are your values? What are you trying to do? What's going to help you? And then behaving in line with that. Nick, let me let me piggyback on this because it just happened. You know, this happens often to me, right? It's it's this idea of being gritty. You get a shot. You've been in the minors for four years. You come up. You finally have a big day. And, you know, you have a little inflammation, right? And your arm's hurting you. Right. And do you tell anybody? Right. And and the, the gritty thing is, no, you just get after it. Do what you have to do. You do that enough times. Guess what? You're looking at Tommy John. You're going to TJ. You're out now for the next 16 months. Where did that grit get you? Mm -hmm. Right. So so knowing the difference as to when to push and when to pull back and having real conversations again with a team of professionals that you trust that could give real input based upon the science objective is the way to go. You're not an island in this and just pushing harder and harder is not the answer. I've seen guys ruin their career doing that and girls. So I want to get to the, the work that you guys are doing together in your project. And I think this question will kind of, kind of open up the doors to that. And it's, it's funny. The timing of it is I was just watching the, the giant game uh, this past weekend. And if anybody else was watching it, they were talking about Ryan Tannehill and they, they got into a whole discussion about how he's gone and sought uh, counseling and how much of an impact that's made on his career. And then they then began talking about his coach who played for Belichick and, and never had that type of environment and how he's embraced that environment and created a much uh, a more uh, accepting culture within the team where he can come out and say these things. And so anytime we see that, we see a Ryan Tannehill, we see a Dak Prescott come out and start to openly discuss mental health Obviously, that's got to be some benefit, but I know in, in discussions with you, Adam, sometimes as much as that's great, it may actually be too late by that point, right? It's never too late. Yeah, well, I <laughs> right? shouldn't say too late, but it, it's, 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 it's too it, late when you pull the trigger. That's when it's yeah. too late. You know, unfortunately, that happens way too much. Uh, but the idea is how can we get to a point where those tools are in place where maybe it doesn't get to that, that, the need for therapy? Right, which is, you know, for some people, they're lucky enough to have access, but for a good portion of the population, it's not available. You know, so so it's something that that's very real. And listen, the more professionals talk about this, the better. Right, the more we have these open conversations, I find it comical. It's like, it's like, why wouldn't we want to talk about the reality of our our our, our situation? It's a human condition. Like you're not fooling everybody. We're all suffering with something. Like at this point, it's like the cat's out of the bag. Like you're not, yeah. we all know we're all dealing with shit. Get over it. Let's have a real discussion. It doesn't make you weak. Actually, ironically, you come out looking stronger. Right. Yeah. Go ahead, Nick. Well, so the idea is to like, sort of, uh, we like to say Trojan horse, a lot of these skills and ideas and good science into young athletes. Um, this includes professional, this includes collegiate, this includes kind of the high elite high school level. Um, and what we mean by Trojan horses, like this is really good stuff that could help them in a variety of areas of their life, right? And ultimately feel better, perform better, live better. 
we're just doing it through the vessel of something they already love, which is whatever it is that they compete at, right? And in many cases, multiple things that they compete at. Mm -hmm. And so our company's called the Anti-Fragile Academy. Um, the first course and program that we've really been running is the Anti-Fragile Athlete, right? So you can see I'm geared out, right? We're working with Michigan State, um, one of their soccer programs there talking to a couple other organizations, one in the MLS right now, and then looking to keep um, providing the sort of customized, bespoke, asynchronous curriculum, lots of good videos that are consumable for young people, but also support that with group coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching, consulting, things of that nature. So looking to get this sort of stuff to whoever we can get it to so we can help as many young people as possible. And to Adam's point, um, the diverse array of young people. Like this is another area where I think there's probably been a considerable amount of inequity and underrepresentation. We want to do what we can to try to combat that, right? Get this stuff to people who really need it. We need to democratize this information in a meaningful way. And part of the issue is the only time you get to this is when things are gone very wrong. Yeah. And, and and for many, they still don't have access. So the notion that, you know, having some basic understanding of how your brain works, behavioral change, you know, what does optimal functioning really look like? What are some basic cognitive behavioral skills that you don't have to be, it's not about being sick, it's a way to engage with the world in a meaningful way, right? How do you, how do you build an anti-fragile community, right? What are you doing to deal with the distraction and social media and all these things that are pulling our time and attention that we're basically defenseless, these are skills. They can be learned, right? And they should be learned by everyone, not just athletes. But right now, this is our entry point. Yeah, Adam mentioned anti-fragile community, and we've talked about ecosystem a couple times, but just the thought occurred to me, Eric, when you brought it up, like Ryan Tannehill had a pretty significant environment change as well. Mm -hmm. Like he was one person in Miami, and he was a very different person mm -hmm. once he got to Tennessee, right? Interesting. Yeah. And it, it, this is awesome work and it is so needed. And especially at a time where I think, especially when you're talking about addressing the youth level, because I deal with high school teams all the time. And uh, a lot of the, the coaches who, you know, us boomers uh, are not good at connecting with them. And then there's this assumption that they're this they're weak, right? That they're not as tough as we were and so forth. But you know what? They also deal with a lot of shit that we didn't have to deal with. Like exactly. Said, social, social media, social media. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. Social media and the pressures of, you know, of, of travel sports and the parents and, and all the money that's involved with it and scholarships, like they're dealing with a lot of shit that we didn't have to as kids. So you can't apply your rules of what you were doing in little league, you know, back in the eighties and nineties to them. So this is, this is super, super stuff. So uh, before we wrap it up, I want to know, Mike, if you had anything you wanted to, to add or, or uh, put in there before we uh, get all the contact info to find out more about what you guys are doing. Well, I think there's just a couple of things that uh, I sort of want to reiterate. I think one, um, you know, the, the psychological and the mental side of, of just coaching and, and with people in general is so um, it is so important, yet so many people are just not even thinking about it. And if we can do anything through this podcast is to get more people to understand this is not only going to help in sport. Yes, we know that, but it's going to help in life. It's going to help you navigate some stuff in life that you probably weren't even expecting. So I think it's also important for coaches, ourselves as coaches, to, to learn about this stuff as well, because we're talking about the importance of the athletes understanding these things and having, you know, we talk about habits and mental health. But I think as coaches, we need to be, if we want to be the most impactful coach that we can, we need to be up to date on the stuff that these guys are doing because, um, 
If we're not, how much are we leaving on the table with our athletes to make a positive impact? Because this is a part, this is a blind spot. This is a huge blind spot. And I'll be honest with you, it's a blind spot in what I do. So I'm excited to learn from you guys because this is something that I feel is so damn important, especially coming out of a pandemic and everything that we've been dealing with. So I'm excited to to learn from you guys. And I just want to say thank you for what you're doing because I feel like this is really going to have so much of an impact and it's way more important than teaching a kid how to squat and 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 listen i'm a strength and conditioning coach right but like this is the big stuff and and i really really hope parents coaches athletes listen to this and go you know what i gotta dig a little bit deeper because this stuff if this stuff isn't nailed down you can't the other stuff doesn't matter so so tell us how to find out more so you can check out our website at the antifragileathlete.com um, to Mike's point here, uh, primarily what we're doing is providing uh, online curriculum for these athletes to consume, uh, but often accompanied by training of coaches so that they have a support system around them to help apply and implement training and coaching of the uh, athletes themselves. Um, training and coaching of folks in leadership positions at the organizational level. As we've sort of discussed throughout today, we, we really believe it needs to be on kind of a me level, but also a we level. And so we really seek to um, address both in our sort of approach. So antifragileathlete.com. You can follow me on most social media handles at Dr. Nick Holton and, and Adam doesn't do social. So. Well said. <laughs> uh let me just end on this. It's a couple thoughts for the coach too, because, you know, I still act as a CSCS and I still train clients inside, but like number one, you know, this, you're not invincible, right? And you don't have to be. The funny thing is, it's like, whether you like it or not, it's good or bad, right? Your athletes are going to emulate you for better, or for worse. So the more transparent you are, about what you're dealing with, not to load, you know, put a load on them, but to have real meaningful, that you're not this ideal person that they think you are. Transparency is incredibly powerful, right? Because that's going to allow them to model you in a more meaningful way. And it's going to humanize all of this so that they're more, more open to talking, right? And to, and listen, we always say like, athlete who wants to perform really, really well over time is the athlete who is mentally healthy as a foundation. And anything we can do to help coaches experience that, the only thing it's going to have is their athletes are going to thrive because of it. Yep. Incredible. Incredible stuff, guys. Can't thank you enough for your time and and your input. Um, This has been great. And uh, we'll share all all that contact info uh, in the show notes. We want to thank everybody for listening and please take advantage of of what these guys have to share. It's incredibly powerful. And it's, I think it's going to make a a huge impact in, in, in what we do and in ultimately the lives of the people that we get to affect. So thank you again. This has been episode nine of the principles of performance podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com. 
or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.